as we have a few faces tonight, I would like to um, just recap just a minute and just remind you that what we're studying tonight is not Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. I know that's a great way to start a Bible study off, right? Bear with me. This, I, I, we are not trying to teach this as if it is where we get our doctrine and our teaching from. We believe in the authority and the guidance of Scripture alone. Now that is, that's the, the, that's the bulk of it. You don't hear nothing else tonight, hear that. What this is, is a very early first century document called the Didache. And it's basically the teaching of the 12 apostles to the nation. This is a document that, the, that many of the first century uh, church fathers, or let me say this, many of the second and third century church fathers quoted this document. For many years it was lost. All we knew was that they quoted from this document. Sometime, I think, in the 18th or the 19th century, it was found again, and so we have it today. But again, no one has ever said this was holy inspired scripture. What they do say is this. This was a document that was given to the early Christians before the New Testament was written. So before, like for instance, they believe that this document actually came before the books of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, or I'm sorry, the only books that may have came before this document, let me say that, would have been Matthew and James, all right? None of the rest of the New Testament was around whenever they had this document. So this was kind of a teaching or a guidance that they gave to give some some uh, some structure to the church to give some guidance and teaching to how a Christian is supposed to live. And so we're studying this because primarily it's a very interesting document. But we will always go back and get our final teaching from what the Word of God teaches in its whole. Okay? So again, this is a very interesting document. I felt like a Wednesday night Bible study was a good time to just examine it and look at it because, again, um, it, it, it has been well proven that this is a, a um, valid document. And so this is, a, this is a document that many of the early Christians actually used and actually talked with. So I do believe it's a, well, it's a good document for us to be able to look at and look back and see at some of the ways that the church did things or some of the teachings that they had. One of the things that you're going to see tonight is that things have changed for the better. We're going to be studying what we would call the Lord's Supper. However, back whenever they did it, it was a complete meal. You know, it really was the Lord's Supper. You know, we have the Lord's Snack today, right? You get your little cracker and you get your little cup of juice if that's what we do. Now, I can't say this for certain, but I do know that when you go back and you study 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it is. We'll, we'll look at it tonight, so it's either 10 or 11. But when you go back and you study that chapter, what you find is that the Apostle Paul has to make a change in the church. He comes into the Corinthian church and he sees that the Lord's Supper is not the Lord's Supper. He comes in and he sees that people are 
jumping in front of each other and they're not letting the needy go first. They're not they're, they're not taking care of the poor in the church because one of the things that, from my understanding, that they would do in the early church is they would have a meal for those less fortunate. And instead, people were coming and getting in front of these people and they were eating it all up and then they were literally getting drunk off of the wine of the Lord's Supper. And so they were having a complete supper, but they were in there just feasting like it was a party instead of actually doing what the Lord's Supper was meant to do. That is, for us to remember and for us to um, partake of, by faith, the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and participate in the benefit that His broken body and His shed blood purchased for us. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, has to change things around. And he has to teach them, this is what I received from the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And then he lays out to them what the Lord's Supper looks like. Now again, I don't know this to be true, but I wonder if right there is really where the change started taking place. That they no longer had full meals as the Lord's Supper anymore and they saw it being more appropriate for the purpose of it to make sure that we we zero in on what this actually means. And so I wonder if when we study this tonight, because what you're going to see when we study this is that you're going to see a Jewish meal and the prayers that go along with a Jewish meal, but they converted the prayers to Christianity. And again, I'll show you that tonight as we go through it. But the main thing I want you to understand is this. The Lord's Supper that we celebrate today is the one that we celebrate according to Scripture. The one that was handed down through the Lord Jesus himself first. And keep in mind, the Lord Jesus did give that ceremonial supper during a full meal, right? It was during the Passover meal that he gave this supper. There were different cups that were blessed, and at certain cups, this is where he talked about his blood and the new covenant in his blood. There was certain bread that was broken during that Passover, and it was during that time that he actually said, this is my body, it is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. So yes, we did receive from the Lord Jesus the Lord's Supper in a full meal, but at the same time, as it was being abused, I believe what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or chapter 11 is that the Apostle Paul refocused that thing because it, instead of being the Lord's Supper, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, this is not the Lord's Supper. It's supposed to be, but it's not the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper looks like this, and then he lays out and describes it for us, and that's what we do today. That's the reason why when we participate in the Lord's Supper, I usually use the scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we walk through that to do the Lord's Supper, to make sure that first and foremost, the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal. It is a, it is a meal to remember. So it is a meal to where, honestly, our purpose there is to focus our minds on what this represents and what it has done for you and me. And so 
in the Lord's Supper, whether you do it in a complete meal and somewhere in there you break bread and you drink the fruit of the vine, I, the truth of the matter is, I don't think, I don't know, I don't think, I know that it really doesn't matter. Why do I say that? Because we're not under law, we're under grace. What do I mean by that? We don't have to do A, B, and C, and if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, then you will be saved. No, we are saved by faith alone. Everything else we do is a work of our faith. The Lord's Supper is a work of our faith. It is a way that we express our faith to be able to say, this represents his body, and his body was broken for me. And I do this in remembrance of what he has done for me. And then in the same way, I take the cup. And when I take that cup, I understand that this represents his blood, the new covenant that is in his blood. And every time I eat this bread and every time I drink this cup, I proclaim by faith that I believe with all my heart that the Lord Jesus died. He shed his blood for my sins. He has reconciled me to God. He has took me from being an enemy to being a child at the table in the throne of God. And I proclaim that by faith until the day he comes back to bring me there with him. That's what we do in the Lord's Supper. But going back to the document here in chapter 9, notice it says the Eucharist. Anybody want to take a shot? What does Eucharist mean? Because this is what a lot of churches call the Lord's Supper. They call it the Eucharist. The Catholic Church calls it the Eucharist. Anybody know what it means? No? Passion. Thanks. It's a Greek word that means thanksgiving, to give thanks. And so the reason the, the early church began to call it the Eucharist was because this was the time that they gave thanks. Gave thanks for what? For the broken body of the Lord Jesus, for the blood of Jesus. But it could also be, the Eucharist could be any meal that you give thanks before of. The Eucharist means to give thanks. And so this is a guidance and a document here that's just telling the early church, this is the way that we give thanks. Now the reason why you're going to learn that this is important, especially for the people that received it back then, is because they were under very heavy Jewish influence. All right? Now, Jews prayed multiple times a day. And they prayed specific prayers over meals and a certain order of the meal. Well, what we were trying to do was figure out how do we not continue in Judaism but start in, in faith in Christ alone. How, how, but how do we understand that Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism, and so it's not a bad thing if the two mix in some way. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In the document here he says, Now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. First, concerning the cup. Now here's the problem that we have. He, we don't believe that he's actually talking about the Lord's Supper that we remember, that we do. The reason being is because the Lord Jesus handed it down in another order. 
What did Jesus do first? Was it the cup or was it the bread? It was the bread. And then he took the cup afterwards, saying, this is the new covenant that is in my blood. Now that may not seem very significant to you, but if you were a Jew, it would, because there was an order that they went through in a, in a meal, especially a community meal that they took up. A, a Jewish person would actually begin, there would be a leader, the way every meal would start, they would pick up a cup and they would give a blessing over the cup. And this is the way that any community meal or any feast or any gathering, it would start in this order. The Jews would pick up the cup and then the Jewish blessing would go something like this. Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. So this is the way the Jewish meal would start. Blessed art thou, Lord, ruler and creator, the one who created the fruit of the vine. In other words, they give thanks for the fruit of the vine that they are about to consume as they take this meal. All right, And then everyone would say this prayer, and afterward they would say something to the effect of, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the leader would step up. He would say the prayer. The church would respond with a, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Or something of that sort. And then he would move on to some part of the meal. And then he would say another blessing. And so that's what we're dealing with right here in chapter 9. But instead of saying, um, blessed art thou, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine, they Christianize this Christian meal. And so this is what they say in chapter 9 of the Didache here. We thank thee, our Father. Now notice the difference. The Jews proclaim God as the Lord our God, ruler of the universe. Now are those things true about God? Absolutely. But the Christians here understood, as the Lord Jesus had taught them to pray, that we're not just praying to the God of all creation. Who are we praying to as Christians? Our, our Savior or our Father. This is our Father. He has made us, through the Lord Jesus Christ, His children, rebels, enemies, people that do not belong, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Through that, we now are children of Almighty God. The Christians take this same structure of a Jewish meal, and now the, what they do is they take the cup, just like the Jews would, and now they're starting this meal, and they say a prayer, but instead of talking to the ruler of the universe, the God of all things, they say, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy servant. Now think about what he's saying right there. We thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy servant. So they look at the fruit of the vine, and instead of just thanking God for creating fruit of the vine, they thank God for what it represents, for what it's a picture of. And they say, God, we thank you for revealing who the vine of David is that we get this fruit from. Like, for instance, go back with me to um, Jeremiah chapter 33. 
verse 14 through 17. those of you that were in our Isaiah study, you remember, and you may not remember this, but Isaiah was prophesying that God was fixing to come through and he was going to cut down every tree to the stump. Y'all remember that? And he was using that as as a uh, metaphor, if you will, I guess you could say, for what he was going to do to the people of Israel and the people of Judah. What he wanted them to understand is that by the time God gets done because of their sin, there's going to be nothing left but a stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? David's father. And so there was going to be nothing left of the the royal lineage that the Messiah was going to come from except for a stump. Now, this is where the analogy of the other prophets start calling the Messiah that's going to come from that stump a branch or a shoot or a vine. So they started seeing this as that it, it looks like, as you study the Old Testament, that by the time God gets done disciplining his people, there ain't nothing left for the Messiah to come from. It's just a stump. But the analogy that he uses or the metaphor that he uses is that from this stump is going to come forth a shoot. And so picture in your mind this stump and it looks dead, but right out of the middle of that stump sprouts this little green sprout. And then it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And this is the way the Bible used to describe what the Messiah was going to look like that was going to come from the throne of David. Jeremiah digs into this here in Jeremiah chapter 33 beginning in verse 14. Look what he says here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous what? Branch to spring up for who? For David. This is the picture. If you want to see where this picture begins, go back to Isaiah chapter 11, I believe it is, or maybe the end of Isaiah chapter 10. It's in that area. But anyway, there's going to be a branch that's going to spring up for David. He is going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the branch. The branch is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. All right? And that's exactly what Jesus is to us. Now go to verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That was the promise that God made to David. From your seed, I am going to bring forth one that will rule over your kingdom and my kingdom forever and ever and ever, and that throne will never like a man to sit on it. But then when you go back and you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and the things we're studying right now, God cut that thing down so far that we looked at it and went, where's he going to come from? 
And but that's exactly the reason why the genealogies in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are so important. I know y'all hate those things, especially uh, Bobby was talking about Ezra. He went ahead and read Ezra chapter 2. And Ezra chapter 2 is nothing except for names of the people and the families that came back to Israel from bondage in Babylon. And Bobby was talking about, man, I can't wait till you get there. He was speaking sarcastically. But the same way when you go to the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, when you look at this was the son of David and the son of this and begot this and begot that and so on and so on, the whole point is so that you can look back and see what? God kept his promise. God kept his promise to David, and now he's here. And so whenever the Christians turn this prayer around and they look at the fruit of this vine, they look and they said, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David. Because that's where the promise begins. That's where little by little God has always been revealing what the Messiah was going to be. When we start in Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent um, tempting Adam and Eve and he makes them fall and God comes down and he says to to all three of them, but he says to them, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. All right? He's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's the very first time we catch a glimpse of what this Savior, what this Messiah is going to look like. He is going to be the seed of the woman. That's all we know. And this is the reason why when Cain kills Abel, we're in trouble. Why? Because it can't be Cain, because Cain just killed his brother. And guess what? It can't be Abel. And so what do we see next in Genesis chapter 4 or the end of Genesis chapter 3? Eve is pregnant again, and she praises God. She says, God, I thank you that I have gotten another man from you. Why a man? Why not a woman? Did Eve like men more than she did having daughters? No, that wasn't the case. The point being was they remembered what paradise, what paradise lost is. And they're waiting on the seed that God has spoken to them and said he's coming. And so when she gets pregnant with Seth, she's thinking, maybe this is the one. And she's excited about it. This is the reason why Hannah is on her knees at the altar praying. And, and it's, it wasn't just because she was a woman and she wanted a child. No, it was because for a Jewish woman to be barren, you know what that meant? They were cursed. They were not going to have the opportunity to produce the seed that would be able to bring the Messiah into the world. And this is something that would be looked down upon by so many as she's at the altar and she's crying and she's praying. And then when she finally has Samuel, this is a blessing because maybe this is the one. And that's, as I told you Sunday morning, every time we go a little further in it, when, when Moses comes on the scene and his parents see that there's something special about him. He's a beautiful child, as the Bible says. And they see that. And the devil also sees it. And what does the devil try to do? Tries to kill him. Go back and read the story. Well, do you think that's coincidence? No, the devil was in the garden. He heard the testimony. 
he knew the Messiah was going to be the seed of the woman. And as soon as he sees someone like he sees Abel, and he says, well, maybe Abel's it. Well, guess what the devil does to Cain? Twists Cain's mind up so that he kills the seed. Everywhere throughout the Old Testament that you go, the devil is always trying to kill the seed. But little by little, God reveals to his people a little bit more. This is what the Messiah is going to be like. This is what he's going to look like. This, what we're reading right here, was where the promise really come out that he's going to come from this lineage. And you know, when you study the Bible, it teaches us that the devil almost succeeded. It got down to one king, one man in the line of David is the only thing that held this together. The devil tried every way in the world to wipe out the lineage of David. Why? Because God had revealed. Now this is what he's going to be. It's going to be a shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse because it ain't going to be nothing but a stump left. But a shoot's going to come out of it. A branch is going to come out of it. A vine is going to come out of it. In other words, the Messiah is going to come from a lineage that looks like it's been demolished, but it's not. And so these early Christians come in and they thank our Father for the holy vine of David, thy servant, and which you made known to us through Jesus, thy servant. So how, what did he make known? He made known the vine of David. This is the vine. This is the branch. This is the one that's been promised and, and the one that God has been slowly revealing to us. He's here. You made him known to us through Jesus Christ. And he ends here, to thee be the glory forever and ever. And that's probably the response that the people would say back. To you be the glory forever and ever. And so picture this in your head as we read this. We've got this cup. We lift it. I say, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy servant, which you made known to us through Jesus Christ, your servant, then the church would in response say, to thee be glory forever and ever. And this is the way that a typical Jewish meal would go, just with a little different prayer, of course. Then we move on and concerning the broken bread. Notice what he says here. We thank you, O Father, for the light and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus your servant. Now think about bread for a minute. With the, with the cup, we were looking at the fruit of the vine, right? And this is the holy vine. Where did it come from? It come from the holy vine of thy servant David. Now with the bread, what is bread known for in the Bible? The bread of what? Life. Jesus said, man shall not live by what? Bread alone. So bread is always representative of life. And so here we thank God, our Father, for the life. And we do that as we break the bread because it is this bread that has given us life. And it has given us life and then it also says, and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus your servant. So here again, the point is, is that when they went from the vine to the bread, they saw that it represented the life that Jesus gives them. They saw that it represented, that that life came through the knowledge of Jesus Christ that he gave to us. And then he says, to you be the glory forever and ever. <clears throat> and again, that would be where the church would respond. To you 
Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Now, in a typical Jewish meal, the prayer would read like this right here. So for the blessing of the bread, the Jewish prayer would read like this. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. Again, the Jewish people proclaim God as the Lord God, the ruler of the universe. And then it says, who brings forth bread from the earth. So again, in a Jewish meal, they would give thanks for the fruit of the vine and that God created it. They would give thanks for the bread and that God created it and that he's the source of it all. But the Jews turned this meal around, or not the Jews, the Christians turned this meal around and because they have such Jewish background, they still go through their routine, but the only difference is they speak of the fruit of the vine of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and the blood that's been shed. They speak of the broken bread as the life that God gives us and the knowledge that he has made known to us. And then notice what he says in the last part of this prayer right here. He says, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills. Now think about that for just a minute. Somebody tell me in layman's terms, in physical terms, what does it mean that this broken bread was once scattered over the hills. All right, you're close, but you're thinking spiritually. Let's go physically. You're a farmer, right? You're a farmer. Get spiritual completely out of it. No spiritual at all. You're a farmer. You got this bread in your hand. Where'd that bread come from? Huh? The grains that are all over the place, right? And so you've got this field of all kinds of grains, and you go through and you collect all of those grains of head together, right? And out of all of those grains that have been gathered together, what do you get? Bread. Bread. And so he's given a picture here, and he's saying when he prays to God, he says, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills, and it was gathered together and became one. You see that? So you got all these different heads of grain. They're gathered together, and it becomes one, and you get bread out of it in the same way. What's that next part say? So let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Because it's the picture that they're seeing here. When we take this broken body and we, we see that it's broken, the body of Christ is also many different members, right? And they're all over the place. And what we're praying for is that day when we are all gathered together and we are truly made one. And this was the prayer of the early church. It's the same thing that Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, thy kingdom come. Lord, come quickly. Because again, this was the Jewish hope, and it continues to be our Christian hope. Let me give you some scripture to back it up. Go with me to um, Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 37. <clears throat> Lord, I only need a few more minutes. Just give me a bunch for a few more minutes. Jeremiah 39, verse 37. Maybe I wrote the wrong scripture down. There is no 37, is there? 
I must have wrote this while I was studying that. Go to Isaiah 11, verse 11. I'll skip over that one from Jeremiah. There is a reference from Jeremiah, but I wrote the wrong chapter down. Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verse 12. you look up Zechariah chapter 2 verse 10 and Amanda would you look up Mark chapter 13 verse 27 alright Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12 look at what this says he will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so again, here was the hope and the prophecy that the prophet said. One day the Messiah is going to raise a banner for the Lord. And in this banner it's going to call the nations to gather together to him. It's going to gather the dispersed of Israel and the dispersed of Judah. And he's going to gather everybody under this banner into his kingdom. And this was the hope. Now, Bob, read uh, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10. So they were looking for this day that he was going to come and dwell in their midst. Thank you. That he was going to come and dwell in their midst. He was going to be their king. He was going to gather them together. Amanda, give me Mark chapter 13, verse 27, because what we see is this continues into the Christian mindset. Again, this mindset of we're waiting on this day when God gathers his church together as one and we are in his kingdom together and we are proclaiming his broken body and his shed blood until the day that he comes. And it is our longing that he would come. You know, this is, this is the problem with much of us today. Many of us are too much like Lot's wife. What do I mean by that? We're so in love with this world that we can't keep our eyes focused on what he's promised and what he's what's coming so that we, we set everything we do toward moving toward that goal. God, I long for the day that you come back. And you know what? Unfortunately, you know what it takes for us to get there? It takes tragedy in this world, don't it? It takes losing a loved one. It takes losing something great in this world. It takes losing a child or it takes losing um, a, a job and you can't provide anymore. Something happens in this world to where you recognize that this world is hopeless and I long for the day when I don't have to worry about a job no more. I long for the day that I'll be with my loved ones. And again, you can't long for that until what? The more you long for the promises of God, the more tragedy that comes. And unfortunately, I hate to say that, but the ones that long, the Christians that long for the things of God the most and the kingdom of God the most are the ones that usually prosper. That's the truth. And so I pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we understand that we are celebrating His broken.
broken body and his shed blood and we're proclaiming his death and, and, and the life that he gives us until the day that he comes and as we do that we're longing for the same way that this bread that we're taking was once scattered over all the hills and yet in the imagery, picture it in your mind it's collected and it all comes together and it's, it's made into bread and in the same way our prayer is Lord your kingdom come Lord gather your church together Lord do like you promised in Isaiah that you're going to raise the banner and you're going to gather the dispersed of Israel and the dispersed of Judah and you're going to gather the nations and, and God do like you said in Zechariah that you're going to dwell in the midst of us and God do like you said in Mark that you're going to send your angels out to the four corners and you're going to gather them in and you're going to throw the, the wicked ones into the burning fire and you are going to set the other ones on your right hand and bless them and they'll be with you forever and ever. That's our hope and that's our prayer. And this is the reason why the Christians prayed the way that they did. And they did it as they partook of a full meal. Now keep going with me. Next it says, But let no one eat or drink your Eucharist. What we say Eucharist meant again? Your thanksgiving. Let no one eat or drink your thanksgiving. Now, does that mean that nobody can eat or drink with you? No, but what you understand is that the Lord's Supper is not for everybody. The Lord's Supper is for people that proclaim this, for people that believe this, for people that trust in this. The Lord's Supper is for assembled believers. And the truth of the matter is, an unbeliever has no right to partake of it. And they shouldn't partake of it. Notice what he says next. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized in the name of the Lord. In other words, they have, because baptism, here's where we get into baptism. What is baptism? Well, to put it in a very short definition, it is the witness to the world that says, I believe that Jesus has buried my old sinful life and he has cast my sins and washed them away to the bottom of the deepest ocean as far as the east is from the west and I believe that he has given me new life and I've been raised from the deadness of my sins and I walk in the new life that he's given me. And so if somebody professes that with their life, they should partake of the Lord's Supper. They should thank the Lord for the holy vine of David, which he made known to us through his servant Jesus Christ. They should thank God for the broken bread that gives us life, and it comes through the knowledge of him, of Jesus Christ, his servant. And they should be praying and longing for the day that Jesus comes back and pulls us all together as one and we are all made perfect in his sight. That should be something that we long for and we pray for. But only those that profess that should do this. For, and then he says why. Here's why. For concerning this also the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. And I think that was in Matthew chapter 7 maybe, I think. 
can look that up later. I'll put a Google search and tell you exactly where it is. But he basically, he ended a teaching and he said to them, he said, don't give what's holy to the dogs and don't cast your pearls to the swine. And what he was saying is this. When you're going to and fro in the villages and you're spreading the gospel, and you remember what he said to them? He said, if you come to a door and they receive you, then let your peace fall upon this place. And what he was talking about was the old Jewish blessing. The old Jewish greeting was simply shalom. Y'all remember that? And shalom means complete peace, happy. It's a blessing that you're wishing whoever you said shalom to. It was like you saying, I pray that the Lord will make you so happy. And I pray that you will be so content. And I pray that you'll have inner peace of of soul and you'll have peace in body and you'll have peace in spirit and you'll peace in mind and and so I pray that you'll have complete peace and so what Jesus was saying is whenever you come to knock on a door and spread the gospel and they receive you let your peace fall on that place if if it don't if they don't receive you don't bless that place and he says instead to do what Turn around and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony of the fact that they did not want to receive the gospel. They did not want to hear the words of God. And so ultimately he's saying, don't give what's holy to the dogs. In other words, don't take what God says is holy and give it to somebody that is not going to treat it as holy. Pigs don't care anything about pearls. Y'all know that, right? Pearls don't mean nothing to a pig. You can take a handful of priceless pearls and throw them out to the swine, and what are they going to do with them? Trample them, push them down into the mud. And what Jesus is saying when he says, don't give what's holy to the dogs, is he's saying, if somebody is not going to understand what this is, the value of it, what it means to you, then they should not partake of it. And so don't let somebody who is not a believer partake of the Lord's Supper because it is holy. It represents something very holy. And as much as is possible to you, your responsibility is to make sure that you are partaking of this in a manner that is worthy. And if you want to know what that means, I'm not talking about you need to be sinless because... This is why I need the Lord's Supper is because my only hope from my sin is what he's done for me. But what does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? It means to do it in the way that Jesus said do it, to discern, as Paul said, the Lord's body. Let's go back and look at that since we got just a few minutes. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, I believe this is kind of likely where the transition began on um, it not being a full meal anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. in the following instructions I do not commend you. So what does it mean to that I do not commend you? I don't approve of this, right? 
Let's see what he's talking about. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, remember a few weeks ago I said the church is the, the called out assembly, right? When you come together as a called out assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. So in other words, you're going to be able to, Jesus said you're going to know, uh, know them by their fruit, right? So yes, there, there's going to be divisions in you so that you're able to see who's genuine in the faith and who's not, and you're able to, to, to warn those that are not. But verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So you're eating something, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. They're not waiting on each other. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. Does that sound like the Lord's Supper to you? Look, what's his first word of verse 22? And then what kind of, um, what, what is the, oh man, not a period, but an exclamation mark. Do you see that? So how would you pronounce that? Huh? What? Y'all hear that? You got to listen. Grammar is important. You got to read this the way that Paul would, would want you to understand it. When he says what, he means what? What are you, what are you doing? And then look what he says next. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So there again, the Lord's Supper was a meal that they would come together. And it was a meal that when they come together, notice how many times he says when you come together, when you come together, when you assemble as a church. It was a time that they came together. And yes, they would get their fill. Why? Because they're feeding, eating. They're all eating together. They're all enjoying a fellowship meal together. But then, look what he says next. He says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Why? Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul's laying back the purpose of why, of what the Lord's Supper really is, right? And the Lord's Supper ain't about you getting filled up and getting drunk. You got houses to eat and drink in if you want to go do that. You see what he's saying? The Lord's Supper is about taking the bread and breaking it and remembering that this is his body, and it was broken for you. And then look what he says next. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So there again, the cup is not about getting drunk. What's the cup about? The cup's about remembering that there's a new covenant. There's a new covenant that reconciles me between to God. How does that new covenant come into, into being? Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy vine of David. And then we do it in remembrance of him. And then keep going with me in verse 26. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of your faith. It's what we say to one another when we partake of it, that I believe that Jesus' body was broken so that I could be forgiven of my sins. I believe that Jesus' blood was shed so that all my sins could be forgiven and I could be made right with God. And I believe that and I proclaim that every time I do this until he comes again. Because again, that's what I'm waiting on. That's what I'm longing for. Now keep going. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So we got to figure out how were they doing it. They weren't remembering the Lord. They weren't recognizing that this is the broken body of Jesus. They weren't recognizing this is the shed blood of Jesus. They weren't recognizing the benefits that it purchased for them. And they weren't proclaiming the Lord's death as they done it. Keep going. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Notice what 29 says. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? It means you did not discern that this is not just bread. By faith, spiritually, you are participating in the broken body of Jesus Christ. This is not just fruit of the vine. By faith, spiritually, you are participating in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me show you where that is. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and start in verse uh, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a what? A participation in what? Think about that for a minute. When you partake of the Lord's Supper and you bless that cup, you are participating in the blood of Christ. I'm not telling you that that cup becomes blood. I'm not telling you that. But I am telling you that the Bible says, spiritually, by faith, when you do that, God sees it as you participating. What does it mean to participate in something? You take a part in it. Now, where the Catholic Church and many people get this wrong is they believe this is how the grace of God is imparted to you. They believe that by doing this, this is how you get the grace of God. No, the Bible teaches us we are saved by what? Faith and faith plus what? Nothing. By faith alone. But when we bless the cup, we participate by faith spiritually in the blood 
of Jesus Christ. Keep going with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 16. Uh, yeah, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, meaning Jesus Christ. Consider the people of Israel. He wants to give you an example here so you understand it. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Think about what he's saying here. In the Old Testament, when you gave a sacrifice, part of it was burned, part of it you ate. And when you ate of this sacrifice, Paul is saying you participated in what that sacrifice gave you. And so we participate in the benefit that that sacrifice has purchased for us. That's what it means to participate in the blood and participate. It means that we get to enjoy the benefit of what this sacrifice has done for us. And so I want you to understand that that's not just for anybody. That's for assembled believers and for believers that have examined themselves to make sure that, yes, it is about unconfessed sin in one degree. Should you partake of this if you've got sin in your life that you refuse to repent of? No, because you're disobedient. But, so we should examine ourselves. We should confess, before we take the Lord's Supper, we are to take a moment to really examine ourselves and say, Lord, I'm sorry that this sin in my life and these sins in my life, and God, I genuinely want to ask you to forgive me of all of my sins in my life. And I want to ask you to lead me into repentance and show me how to turn from the sins in my life. And as you do that, you reap the benefit. And what are the benefits of this broken body and this shed blood? Forgiveness. As you thank Him and you proclaim the Lord's death and you long for His coming when one day you don't have to fight with Him ever anymore. I don't know about you, but listen, I got loved ones I want to see. I do. I got loved ones I want to see. But you know what makes me happier about heaven than anything? I don't have to fight with Him anymore. I hate fighting with Him. Do you hate your sin? I hate my sin. I'm talking about, I sit here sometimes and I say to myself, Kevin, you are a pastor. You think things like that and things like this come into your heart and and so I cannot wait until the day when I don't have to fight with sin anymore. That I'm exactly like he is. And so when I look and I partake of the Lord's Supper, I do it proclaiming the Lord's death and longing for his coming because I know what all it means when he comes back. Or at least I know enough to make me want to long for it. Let me say that again. So that is the Lord's Supper and the prayer that they would do. But then I want you to notice um, at the at chapter 10 on your uh, Didache, we're not going to get into it this week. I'm closing right now. Notice what is the title of it? And then read the first three words of it, or first five words. But after you are filled, 
So the Jews also had a prayer that they prayed after the meal. There was a prayer that they would pray, and next week we'll look at that prayer that they prayed and see how the Christians came in and converted it, Christianized it, if you will. So they're keeping their Jewish custom of a meal, but they were doing it in a way that remembered the Lord and what he had done. You see what I'm saying? And I believe the reason why we do it today is probably because of what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because this Didache was written before 1 Corinthians was written. So likely they were still doing it this way, and it had got so messed up that they weren't even remembering the Lord anymore, did they? They just called it the Lord's Supper. But Paul comes in and has to restructure it. And now today, we just do it with the little broken body and the spilled blood. Any questions on the Lord's Supper? Any confusion? Did I confuse you? Next week we'll come back and we'll look at uh, the rest of the meal because again this the meal continues on a little bit. So, uh, you got any questions afterwards? Come see me. Most importantly, what application do we get from this? I hope the next time you take the Lord's Supper that you understand what it means to partake of it in a worthy manner, and I hope you'll discern that this is not just cracker and juice that we're drinking. We're participating in the benefits of the Lord's Supper. Everybody understand that? All right. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, please. Father, we thank you tonight for your broken body and your shed blood. And, Father, I just ask you, Lord, that, Father, you would help us to partake of it in a worthy manner. Father, I pray, God, that you would remind us that, uh, Lord, our forgiveness, our redemption, it came at a cost, a great cost. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray, God, that, um, Lord, you would help us to, to just re remind ourselves that we're forgetful people and we need memorial meals, Father. Lord, we need reminders. And, Father, I thank you, Lord, that you give us this Lord's Supper, Father. And, Father, I just pray tonight that, Lord, it has been taught accurately. And, Father, I pray, God, that you have been honored and glorified during this service. Father, I want to thank you that you're a God that keeps your promises. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that a promise you made many years ago to your servant David, Father, you fulfilled it in Jesus. And Father, I thank you for that holy vine. Father, I thank you, Lord, that in the same way that bread was once scattered over the hills, I thank you that one day you're coming back to get us and you're going to gather us all together in your house. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you just, Lord, help us to long for your coming. Help us, Lord, to remember that. Lord, it's not always going to be the way it is right now. Father, we love you. God, I thank you so much for, for everything you've given us to lead us and guide us. And Father, we, we just pray that you would help us to keep learning more and more about everything you've done for us. I pray for these things in Jesus' name.